Yo, today's QOD is, the question is not, do we have bias? The question is, which are ours? Here we go. Show. I'm your host, Sean Croxton of SeanCroxton.com. We got a brand new speaker on the show today. His name is Howard J. Ross. Everybody needs to know about Howard J. Ross. I'm surprised his name hasn't come up a lot lately with all of our recent events. And I read a book by Howard called Our Search for Belonging several years ago. And uh, it just it just blew my mind and I use some of his stuff in my Money Mind Academy course uh, when we're talking about biases and how the brain is wired. He also has another book which is going to be re-released next month called Everyday Bias. It's available on Kindle right now. I haven't read it but I hear it is absolutely amazing. I want to do a quick thought experiment with you. Now imagine whenever you encounter an object or a person will say, or a place or a thing that every single time you encounter something, you have to make an assessment of it, a brand new assessment, a brand new evaluation. You have to decide, is this person, this place, this thing, is it for me? Is it, is it against me? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it going to hurt me? Is it going to be good to me? Is it right? Is it wrong? Imagine doing that for every single encounter that you have. It would be absolutely draining because your brain works on something called the efficiency principle. Your brain doesn't like to expend a lot of energy and calories it needs to save that energy just in case, you know, you run into a very dangerous situation. Your brain, your biology is really all about survival. And so you don't have to make these calorie consuming assessments all the time. Your brain relies on biases. So your brain puts everything into categories and says, this is that way. These people are like this, and it just makes things very efficient. I know it kind of sounds like it sucks, but it's just, it's just the real deal. It's how the brain is wired. And, you know, I think if more people knew about Howard J. Ross and his work, we would be able to stop pointing fingers at other people all of the time going, you're biased, you're prejudiced. You know, they, they say when you're pointing a finger at somebody, there's three fingers pointing back at you. I think this conversation that we're having around racism could change considerably if we all could just raise our hands and say, I'm biased. I'm prejudiced. That's the way the brain works. And as you're going to learn in this clip, it is just the way your brain automatically does stuff. It encounters something. It goes into the category, says, what's this like? What's this person like? What are they like? And it just slaps that label on them unconsciously. And when I read this book, Our Search for Belonging, several years ago, I was like, whoa, 
and it gave me a new awareness. So I got to say to myself, when I started running automatic biases and automatic prejudices, I got to say to myself, I know what my brain is doing in this moment and I can use my consciousness to shut it down. That's what we need to do. Instead of just denying that we're biased and prejudiced, accept it. That is our wiring. That is just the evolution of, of human beings. That, that's just the way that we survive. But again, when you can become aware of it and when you can step in and tell it to stop, that's when things change. Things don't change when you're pointing fingers at other people when you're really doing the same thing yourself. Here's Howard. Hi, everybody. Really happy to be here. Um, I want to uh, start with a story. I was in Jackson, Mississippi about a year ago. I was working with some folks at Jackson State University, which is a historically black college. And then we were working with the faculty and the deans down there. And I had to fly from Memphis, I mean, from Jackson to New York City through Memphis that night to work with another client. And I got to the Memphis airport in time for the last flight out. And I got to the gate, and as soon as I got to the gate, a woman gate attendant comes on and she says, ladies and gentlemen, there'll be a 45 minute delay. As soon as the words came out of her mouth, I hear this voice boom out from behind me. You talking to us, lady? And I turn around, and there's this guy sitting behind me who I would best describe as Santa Claus with an attitude. <laughs> you know, older white guy, white beard, white hair, well-fed, wearing overalls and a flannel shirt, <clears throat> carrying a car magazine in his hand. So I had the guy pegged, you know, and I kind of chuckled to myself and went about my business working on my computer, preparing a talk that I was giving the next week. And it comes time to get on the airplane 45 minutes later, and I get to my seat, and sure enough, who's sitting next to me but angry Santa Claus. <laughs> so uh, we did the nod. Those of you who travel a lot know what I'm talking about, you know, this sort of thing. And uh, we went about our business, took off, and I'm working on my computer. He's reading his magazine. And that's the way it went until we got to New York, and it was time for our initial descent. And then we closed computers. And as travelers know, this is the time when airplane chat starts, because it's now safe to get into a conversation. You're not going to get roped into two hours. Now. And I turned to him, and I say, what took you, what's taking you to New York? And he says, well, I have a professional meeting. I said, really, what do you do? He says, I'm a radiologist. <laughs> so boom, there goes that picture. Then I say, well, what are you working on? He says, well, actually, it gets very animated. He says, we're doing this very cool stuff with functional magnetic resonating imagery where we're looking at the brain and we're actually able to watch the brain and figure out how different parts of the brain respond when people interact with different kinds of people. In other words, he's studying exactly what I'm the most interested in. And had I not pegged him as angry Santa, the car mechanic, I probably could have learned more in a two-hour conversation with him in preparation for my book than in three months of study. So I start with that as part of this conversation because I'm not here to talk about you. I'm here to talk about us. This is what we do as human beings, isn't it? We all do this. We come into circumstances. We quickly evaluate what's going on. And then we determine something about those people. And usually, we don't even have the time to follow up and find out whether that determination is true. We just simply start interacting from there. And we know, I know we've got a very short time for this talk, and this is a topic that we could easily take 45 days to talk about rather than 45 minutes. But I want to, and I also am really aware, and I want to acknowledge that the folks at Google have done some of the most forward-thinking work on this that I know of companies doing. So, so I know some of this is stuff that you may have heard in one form or another, but my own experience has been that, that you can't hear it enough to continue to have us be focused on this. So I want to just start by sharing a, a, just a handful of very quick studies of what we're learning about how this shows up. You know, for example, oops, 
Uh, we know because research at uh, University of Pennsylvania and Cornell has found that basketball referees tend to give fouls to players of the opposite race more than players of, the, of their same race. And this is true for both white referees and for African-American referees. It's different degrees, but nonetheless still the same. We know that people make determinations of people's credibility based on accent. The researchers at Tel Aviv University at the University of Chicago found that we tend to believe people more if they have an accent that's more similar to us and less if they have an accent that's more different. With one exception, anybody want to guess what it is? French. British. British, yeah. We, we tend to think people with British accents are smarter. They don't, they not only make great villains, they are also smarter. Like one of my clients, one of my clients in New York <coughs> has a guy who grew up in Liverpool, which of course is, they speak Cockney there. He called it gutter English. And he said when he goes home to visit his family and then comes back to New York, <coughs> he says, I feel myself getting smarter every mile I fly. We also know the hand dominance is a factor. Researchers at the Max Planck Institute for, the, in, uh, for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands have found that we tend to make decisions based on hand dominance. In other words, if you're right-handed, you may be more likely to hire somebody who's sitting on your right side than who happens to interview on your left side. Makes no sense at all. Just tends to happen. And this is a study I did. I've got an artificial knee. And whenever I go through the TSA process, I have to be screened. So I began to notice that when I was dressed in business clothing, I seemed to be going through faster than I was dressed more casually. It turns out about 47% faster. Now, I could go on and on because there are literally over 1,000 studies in the last 10 years alone of this. We know that this dynamic happens almost everywhere we are. So the question is, you know, when we look at it relative to, relative to height, name, race, gender, hand dominance, <coughs> religion, accent, you know, almost every kind of human identity factor that you can imagine. The question is not, do we have bias? The question is really, which are ours? And that's hard for us to get as human beings, because for the most part, we've seen bias as a fundamentally bad thing. You know, for the most part, we've created this sort of bias equals badness paradigm. And, and that's challenging for us, the very notion that we have bias challenges us to be able to look at ourselves in ways that are very practical. So what I want to talk about is how that happens, why it happens, and what are the, some of the things that we're learning we can do about this both, in, both individually and collectively to create organizations, especially where we can make better decisions, not just so that we can be nice to each other or sing kumbaya, but so that we can actually make good organizational decisions and good talent management decisions. And it shows up in virtually everything we do. Now, we know that bias is a function, a natural function of the human brain, and it happens for a very clear reason. What function does bias serve? Anybody? Why do we have bias? Yeah, it keeps us safe, exactly right. It's, it's a human danger detector. We have to quickly determine whether this person is somebody we want to go towards or away from. It triggers fight, flight, or freeze in us. And, and bias is as natural to human beings as breathing. The challenge is when we demonize it, and we start to recognize bias as, a, as something that if we have, we're bad people, it actually puts us into hiding more. It causes us to not look at our bias as much, but actually deflect from, find reasons for our belief systems. Now, this is challenging as somebody who's worked in the diversity space for about 30 years, this is really challenging because for so long, the diversity space has lived inside of this sort of good person, bad person paradigm, if you will. And, you know, we're sort of looking for the bad one and trying to fix them. And this is what a lot of diversity training has been, is find them and fix them training, which is why a lot of times people come into diversity training like this. 
And even the discourse that we have reinforces that in lots of ways. You know, that, that we advocate rather than trying to build something together. It's inherently problematic. And then we build biases into our institutions as well. So what do we call bias, for example, when you agree to write them down, when we all agree to them and even write them down? Qualifications. Yeah, qualifications. That's all qualifications are. Qualifications are simply biases that we've all agreed to and written down. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. They can be very helpful sometimes. If you're evaluating hundreds and hundreds of resumes, it's valuable to have qualifications so that you can sort those resumes quickly. But it's not necessarily particularly helpful in terms of choosing the best person, and it, in, and it intentionally and problematically can sometimes exclude people who are what we might call the creative eccentrics the people who are outside of the norm of what we do. So we're going to look at basically how this works and how it plays itself out. Now, we know that all human beings have built within us through our life experience uh, we might call an internal book of rules. You know, it happens all the time. We've got, we pick up throughout our life certain ways that we're supposed to be. And it's consistent with the things that we've been taught throughout our whole life, you know, various different kinds of things that we've learned are the right way to be or the wrong way to be. So, for example, Will. How'd you know to do that, Will? <laughs> right, and in our culture, that's what we do. And how did that handshake feel? Not so strong. Not so strong, right. <laughs> See, I didn't, shake, I didn't shake Will's hand in the way that we usually do in our culture, which is kind of like a wrestling match. You know, they wanted to meet you, you know, a little bit softer. But from in the most, for the most part, when that happens, you know, how many people here have heard somebody say, if somebody shakes hands like, with that like you at the beginning of an interview, forget it, it's over? No. I mean, this is sort of, now how crazy is that? Think about it. It's kind of insane, isn't it? <clears throat> that we would take one thing like that. I could have a disability. I could have an injury to my hand. I could from, come from one of the one-third of the cultures in the planet where shaking hands softer is the norm. But that's the kind of reaction we have. By the way, your reaction, Will, was pretty, was pretty um, calm compared to some I've had. I did that with the leadership team of a major governmental institution. And the guy who I shook hands with was this kind of football linebacker guy. He practically fell off his chair, you know, reacting to the handshake. So we have literally thousands of rules in our internal rule book. They're unquestioned for the most part. They're not rules that we even see as rules. We just see them as the way things are. And that rule structure creates in our mind what we call schema. You know, schema, whoops, schema are frameworks for looking at the world that I know you work with in different ways that shape the things that we see and the things that we don't. So for example, look at this picture for a moment. And tell me if you can see any discernible image in this picture. What do you see? A bunny rabbit. A bunny rabbit. Okay, anybody else? I there was an aerial shot. An aerial shot? Okay, anybody else? A Google map? <laughs> I see a bird. A bird? Let me make it easier for you. I'm going to superimpose a picture over now so you can see the actual image. Now what do you see? Cow. Does everybody see the cow? Anybody who doesn't see it yet? We could always do a remedial session, but let me point it out to you. So here are the two ears, the two eyes, and the nose, and this is the forehead. Okay, everybody sees the cow now. Now I'm going to remove the superimposed picture. And tell me now if you can avoid seeing the cow. <laughs> right? Something that wasn't there a minute ago, invisible a minute ago, is now impenetrably in our line of vision. This is the way schema works. In this case, I've actually consciously shifted the schema to one in which you can now see something that wasn't there before. Now, we all know this happens. We know that it happens from the standpoint of our jobs. Everybody here has certain schema in your job that have you see things that other people don't see. 
There are people who um, shine shoes, for example, who when somebody walks by are not looking at the people, they're looking at the shoes. You or I would see the people walking by, they would see the shoes. This is the nature of the way schema works. It shapes what we see and what we don't. And if this can be true for something as silly as a picture or as seemingly superficial to us as a particular job that we happen to be in at the moment, how can it not be true for us based on these identities we live our whole lives in? Our gender, our race, our sexual orientation, you know, our age, the generation we come from, all of these things are fundamentally affecting the schema, affecting the things that we see and the things that we don't. And this is why sometimes we're in circumstances where one person or a group of people see certain things that other people just don't notice. So schema leads to the formation of background. I mean background in the sense that um, that I uh, shape the world by my experience, that I actually see the world through a filter that is governed by the background experience that I've had. It's like a lens through which we filter the world. And background creates a phenomenon of, uh, of a coloration of our world, if you will. It's like a contact lens that gets put on our, over our eyes before we even realize that it's there. And the world actually looks blue to us or green to us or orange to us, depending upon what that lens is. And we sit there and talk to each other through different lenses and often accuse each other of not seeing things, but the reality is we can't see them or we're not oriented towards seeing them unless we stop and notice that we have this lens on. Now, if somebody stops and says, oh, you have a blue lens on, all of a sudden I look at that white wall colored blue in a different way. It still looks blue to me, but my awareness that it's blue is different. So our work in trying to understand this relative to bias is can we understand how our life experiences have filtered the people and the things we're doing in a way that when we see that difference, it actually gives us the opportunity to make that little mental switch to understand what we're putting into the conversation and others aren't. John Searle, the brilliant philosopher from the University of California, says background enables linguistic interpretation to take place, enables uh, perceptual interpretation to take place, and it actually structures our consciousness. It actually gives us the world that we see in a profound way. And so we're not talking about something that happens to some people, and we're not talking about something that happens to bad people. We're talking about something that happens to people, that this is the fundamental way the human mind works, and it impacts us and on everyday basis because background creates context, and context is everything in terms of how we see the world. And we know context shifts things quite dramatically and in funny ways. For example, if it's in the middle of the winter in Washington, D.C., when I live, where I live, 60 degrees means take off your shirt and lay out and get some sun. If it's middle of the summer when it's 100 degrees, 60 degrees means let's get a sweatshirt. It's cold. So context is constantly shifting the way we see things. All right, that was Howard J. Ross. He doesn't have a website. However, I highly recommend you go to Amazon. You pick up his book, Our Search for Belonging. Also, pre-order his book, Everyday Bias, which will be re-released next month. You can actually buy it on Kindle right now. I did that a couple days ago. I can't wait to dive into that one. And um, yeah, you can watch today's entire talk on YouTube. It is called uh, Everyday Bias, Identifying and Navigating Unconscious, Unconscious, Unconscious judgments they're unconscious it's uh talks at google but when it's unconscious you can become aware of it you can make it conscious and you can step in and you can shut down your biases you can shut down your prejudices and you know the world will be a better place for it so that is it for me i will see you tomorrow with gary v it's a good one i'll see you then peace